Good morning to everybody. It's uh, always a privilege to minister from the Word of God. So we are continuing in our series on um, the Acts uh, of Christ and the Apostles. So, you know, if you remember, we started off uh, earlier in this year and uh, we're still making our way through the Gospel of Luke, which, you know, Luke, uh, who was a physician, as we learnt, is writing to this Greek believer, perhaps, uh, named Theophilus. And uh, and we've been going through this, and maybe before we get into today's portion, I'd like to just uh, help to situate us in terms of where we are. So, uh, you know, if you look at the book of Luke, you can break it down into four sections, okay, four sections, and we are coming to the end here of the second section. So the first section was... Um, in uh, in chapter from chapter one to chapter four verse thirteen, it starts off with the angel appearing to uh, to uh, to Zacharias and ends with the temptation of Christ and uh, uh, Christ the temptation of Christ by the devil, where he goes into the wilderness and and uh, and we studied that earlier. So the focus in this portion of the gospel is on who Jesus is, right? Where did Jesus come from? Uh, what are his origins? Uh, showing us that Jesus, in fact, that this this baby that was born was in fact the fulfillment of the of the Old Testament prophecies. Uh, it is about establishing his divinity as well as his humanity. Right? We see his divinity being declared by God as he goes into the water uh, when John the the baptizer baptizes him, and he comes out and and he says, "This is God." The voice from heaven says, "This is." my son, in whom I am well pleased. And then immediately after that, he goes into the wilderness as a man to be tempted by the devil. So that's the first section, uh, which is from chapter 1 through chapter 4 and verse 13. Now we come to the second section, which is where we have been for the last few weeks, which runs from chapter 4, verse 14, through uh, the end of this passage that we are covering today, chapter 9, verse 50. And we call this the Galilean ministry of Jesus. Now Galilee, uh, if you remember the, the geography of Israel, you know, Israel is a, uh, the land of Israel is a very narrow country, right? It just goes from north to south and not much from east to west. On the west you have the Mediterranean, on the east you have Jordan and other countries there, uh, Syria and so on. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the Sea of Galilee is up in the northern part, right? And then down below you have the Dead Sea and Right next to that Dead Sea, uh, or a little bit to the west of it, is Jerusalem. So you can just picture this in your mind. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is up in Galilee, and he lived in Nazareth, which is also up in the region of the of Galilee. And so the first few, um, you know, years of his ministry were in that area, and uh, and this uh, this part of his ministry uh, it ends with his departure towards Jerusalem okay and 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 it was very clear that he was heading towards Jerusalem uh, you know for his crucifixion so uh, next week onwards brother Pradeep will start taking us into that section uh, if you go to chapter 9 and verse 51 it says he ca- it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, so that's the third section, but in the second section, uh, you know, what we see is that the focus here is on Jesus' 
continuing to reveal himself to the people at large, but more importantly to a smaller group of people that we know of as the disciples. So he does that through his preaching. He does that through performing various miracles. Uh, and, and this section is focused on establishing the identity of Jesus. And then the third section is the journey to Jerusalem, which is actually the largest section. It lasts about 10 chapters almost from Luke 9.51 to 19.44. And this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem is roughly around 200 kilometers. And of course, they did this on foot, right? They were walking and it would have taken a long time and, and his teaching didn't stop. So the focus here is on the Jewish rejection of Jesus as he focuses on teaching about uh, his kingdom and the new way, right? So he's introducing the disciples and the people that are around him to his new kingdom, the new way. Uh, and in fact, uh, there's the most parables. There's about 23 parables in this next section uh, on the journey to Jerusalem. So it's a very slow journey. They're walking through. And as they're walking, there's a lot of teaching going on, right? And we'll, we'll look at that in the coming weeks. Uh, and then it ends with the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on what is commonly known as Palm Sunday, right? Where he rides on a donkey and comes into Jerusalem. So that's the third section. And then the last section is the death and re- resurrection of Jesus, which is uh, Luke 19.45 to the end of, uh, end of Luke chapter 24 in the last verse. So that's sort of a, a quick breakdown of, um, of what, uh, what the book of Luke is, right? How, how do you look at the book of Luke and to help us sort of situate ourselves. So we are now at the very end uh, of the Galilean ministry. These are the last set of things that happen uh, discourses that happen before Jesus turns around and heads towards Jerusalem. And he, and of course, in this section, the last few weeks, we've been seeing how he continues to remind them of this, right? And then when we come to chapter 9, it's, uh, you know, we've been, we've been actually in chapter 9 for the last, I don't know, four weeks or something, because it's a very rich chapter. There's a lot of things going on there. There's miracles, there's teachings, there's uh, questions, there's instruction, uh, and uh, it's very focused on the disciples, right? So you come back to the first part of chapter 9, the very beginning, it says here that he, he calls the 12 disciples and then he sends them out, right? He sends them out to go into the land and preach the gospel and, and do uh, certain miracles and all that. And then they come back and they report to him. And interspersed there is some public teaching, some miracles. Uh, there's a discussion with the disciples in verse 16 onwards about, who Jesus, you know, Jesus asked them that question, who do men say? Who do people, who do the people say that I am? And then we see that Peter uh, gives his answer that you are the Christ of God. And then last week, uh, Kishore took us through the revelation to the three disciples, Peter, James and John on the mountain there, which is the transfiguration uh, of Jesus. So in this passage that we just read, and thank you, um, um, Georgie, for reading that passage, you know, we find in this passage four incidents, okay? So there are four incidents that we'll cover today. The first one in verse 37 to 42 is the healing of the son of this man. The son was demoniac. He was possessed of the demon. We'll look, look a little bit more into that. The second part is verses 43 through 45, which is, again, Jesus comes back to a prophecy about his upcoming death, right? That he's going to die He's going to be crucified. He's going to be given up uh, by the leaders. 
of the Jews. Then the third uh, narrative or third incident here is a dispute that happens between uh, among the disciples of Jesus. And this dispute is a very interesting dispute. It's, uh, it's one over who among them was the greatest, right? They were arguing among themselves. And then the last, uh, the last little snippet there, just the last two verses, 49 and 50, is about the disciples' attitude of exclusion. So the disciples were complaining to Jesus about some other person who was uh, doing miracles in the name of Jesus. And they were like, how can this man do this, right? He's not with us. So we're going to look at this, at these passages. And, um, you know, the, the beautiful thing about uh, studying this, this gospel and everything that Jesus says is it really gives us a glimpse as believers into the mind uh, of our Lord. You know, we just sang about the servant king. We sang about his humility. We sang about his mission. Um, you know, but it gives us a sense of what is it that delights the Lord, right? And if you, as you go through this message, you know, if you open up your uh, very simple notes that I, uh, that you have in front of you, you look at the last uh, question, number three here, okay? And I want you to be thinking about this as we go through, okay? So it says, based on the lessons from each of the four narratives, Note down any personal practical applications. What areas of your life need changing to be better aligned to the way Jesus would want you to think and act? Okay, so as you as you listen to me and as we go through these four narratives, these four incidents, these four teaching opportunities that Jesus uses, you know, be thinking about, you know, how do I apply this to myself, right? Is is what I'm seeing here. Uh, that Jesus is talking about. Is that something that's true of me in my life? And how do I need to change, right? So be thinking about that so that you can note it down at the end. So let's let's dive right into these, um, these uh, four incidents. So the first one, and I'll just read it again in, um, in, uh, in uh, verse 37. So keep in mind, they've just come back down from the mountain and it says, now it happened on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him, suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child and gave him back to his father. So what, what do we see here in this incident? Now it happened on the day after the transfiguration uh, where Peter, jo- James and John were up on the mountain and, and they were just come down. Perhaps, you know, we don't know. It says the next day. So perhaps the transfiguration happened sometime in the evening of the prior day. That's when they went up and this happened and they were pretty much, they had spent the whole night there and they were coming back down uh, the next morning. And And if you remember from last week, you know, Peter wanted that transfig- this transfiguration experience was something so unique, something that they had never experienced before. Right? It was God revealing His glory in, in Christ. 
And Peter wanted that to continue, right? So remember when, when Moses and Elijah were about to leave, you know, Peter stops him and says, you know, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. You know, Peter wanted to just stay there. He didn't want to go back down, down the mountain, you know, uh, because this was a wonderful experience, you know, beholding Christ in all his heavenly glory. And, and, and they, uh, so then they're, they're here, they're glimpsing the glory and, and this vision of the glorified Christ. And then they come down and uh, there's all this commotion going on, right? This is, this is a, uh, a sort of, you know, return to reality, right? Return to the reality of fallen life on earth. Here we have a man with a demon-possessed son, right? And we read all the descriptive uh, narrative here by uh, by uh, Dr. Luke, where he says that this boy was suddenly seized by a spirit and he cries out and he was convulsed. And when he convulses, he's foaming at the mouth um, and and hurting himself. And the same uh, the same incident is narrated for us in Matthew chapter uh, 17 and in Mark chapter 9. So I'm not going to go there, but if you go and read those parallel passages, you see there that Matthew describes this boy as an epileptic, right? And it adds there that not only did he bruise himself, but uh, when this happened, he would he would fall often into the fire and the water. And uh, Mark says that he had a mute spirit. The spirit seized him from time to time and he foamed at the mouth and gnashed his teeth and he became rigid. So this boy was suffering uh, from possession by an evil spirit and and this evil spirit when it possessed this boy it produced the symptoms of epilepsy right uh, in common parlance we sometimes refer to it as the fits right and and probably some of us might have witnessed uh, people who have this thing and it can come on you all so you can be perfectly normal it can come on you all of a sudden um, you know and and this boy had this from mark tells us that he's been this way since his childhood so so he was he had grown up with this problem. And while Jesus, Peter, James and John were gone and up on the mountain having that experience of the transfiguration, this man brings the boy to these to his disciples who were left down below. Uh, and uh, you know obviously this man had heard about Jesus and and uh, his healing ministry and word had gotten around and he came with the son with much hope. But you know the disciples, you know, they are not able to do anything to help this uh, help this man and help his son, right? And then we see here Jesus condemns their faithlessness, right? Of all those who were around, including the disciples, and he proceeds to cast out the evil spirit and the boy is healed, right? So praise God, the boy is healed. He gives him back. You know, Jesus shows his compassion for what this man was going through. But what, what are the lessons that we can learn from this, right? Now, um, one thing we see is that you know, uh, you know, and I think I think the fact that this was placed right after the transfiguration is is somewhat revealing, right? It tells us that you know, uh, being with Jesus, believing in Jesus, it doesn't mean that we are immune from the realities of life, right? We live in a sin-cursed uh, earth. That's what our life is like. It's going to be that way till the day we die, right? So it's no accident that it occurred right after that that spiritual and physical high that Peter and, and James and John had experienced. Here they come and there's this big commotion going on and, uh, you know, and, and Jesus condemns uh, the disciples' lack of faith. Now, 
now when we look at this there's a lot of things we could draw from it and uh, you know it's not so much about healing this is a lesson about faith right or the lack of faith or the lack of strength of faith and keep in mind you know people look at this in fact if you go to the parallel passage he talks about you know if you uh, if you want to move this mountain and if you have the faith of a mustard seed um, you know the point of this is not that we can cast out demons or we can move mountains okay um i don't know if any of you have tried that but uh, uh you know it hasn't worked for me for sure okay but but look at look at what the context is right we have to always look at the context now who is jesus speaking to here all right he's speaking to his disciples the the 12 and and keep in mind when we go back to chapter 9 this uh, beginning of chapter 9 uh when we look at verses 1 to 11 what do we see there right jesus grants these disciples a special power right so if you go back um you know uh, verse 2 uh, chapter 9 verse well 1 and 2 let's read 1 and 2 he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases so they had been given the power and authority over all demons okay now i don't think he has given us power and authority over all demons um and to cure diseases and he sent them to preach the kingdom and uh, to god uh, kingdom of god and to heal the sick and so he sends them all and they departed uh, and they preached the gospel verse 6 they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere right so they were I mean, these 12 disciples the same disciples were engaged in mass healing right and then they come back and uh, you know verse 10 the apostles when they had returned and told him all that they had done um you know and then he took them aside and went uh, you know went to uh, uh went went to a, a private place there right so so he's speaking here to the disciples who had been given power and authority over demons here was a boy with the demon uh and to cure diseases and they had gone out and performed all these miracles including healings and casting out demons and so clearly they had been given a, a gift by Jesus and in this instant there was a lack of faith the same power that they were able to use effectively just you know maybe a few days earlier or a few weeks earlier was gone right uh, they were not able to exercise it and you know jesus is god he is able to heal uh, in this situation he exercised his divine authority and he healed the boy and yet we know that the totality of scripture tells us that he does not always heal right he may choose not to heal uh you know paul says in second corinthians 12 verse 7 to 9 he speaks of a thorn in the flesh of which he pleaded with the lord three times to remove it and god did not remove it and his answer was you know my grace is sufficient for you and my strength is made perfect in weakness right so healing by god is always aligned with his greater purpose so i don't want us to take the long le- uh, the wrong lesson from from this passage here the lesson here is not about healing but about our faith and the strength of our faith in christ in the context that matter in the in our lives today think about the disciples on the one hand they had the faith you know god had given them jesus had given them the power they were able to exercise that power in faith and cast out demons and heal the sick and then all of a sudden here they are they're not able to do anything and jesus says it's not because you didn't have the power i've already given you the power but it is because of your lack of faith you see how from time to time from one one uh, time to the next you know they have 
lost their faith. Their faith has weakened and it's hindering their walk with the Lord. You know, the inner confidence that we have in Christ, that, that He is who He says He is, right? And Jesus says here, look at His statements. He calls them, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Right? In Matthew seventeen twenty, it says, because of your little faith, you know, you have lost your faith. You have, your, your faith has been diminished. You know, the same disciples, just a few days earlier, they had the faith to heal and now they were of little faith. You know, we may not have been given the power to heal and cast out demons, but Christ still expects us to have faith and trust in Him and to build up this faith and trust so that we are able to handle the situations in life. Let's turn to Second Peter chapter 1. You know, faith is, is the foundation of the Christian life. Second Peter chapter 1. I'll just read verses 5 to 9. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Notice this long list of things that we are supposed to add, right? But what is the foundation, right? What do we add to? We add to our faith, okay? Add to your faith, virtue, and knowledge, and and self-control, and all of these kind of things, right? So it starts with our faith, right? And then Paul prays for the Ephesians in Ephesians 3, Verse 14, he says this, Christ must dwell in your hearts through faith and this will keep you rooted and grounded in his love to be filled with all the fullness of God. Complete and total faith in Christ that drives our attitudes, that drives our actions. That is what is critical to a fulfilling Christian life. You know, very often we think about, you know, why, why do we, uh, you know, fall back, right, in the, in the Christian life? Right? Why? Why is it that we we fall back in the Christian life? Uh, because of you know our faith is you know going up and down. Right? Um, so he expects us to have complete faith. This is what the Lord expects of us. Right? Uh, if Jesus were to comment on our lives and attitudes, right? What what would he say? What would he say about it? What would he say about our faith? Would he say to to me, Oh, faithless? Believer, oh faithless person, how real is our faith? How much does it drive what you are and how you live? You know, very often we waver, you know, we are wavering in our faith. And Jesus is saying, you know, how long can I be with you? You know, how much do I need to do for you? You know, I who have given my life for you, who have redeemed you, who have promised, who has given you the promise of eternal life, you know, why is your faith wavering? Why is your faith in me wavering? You know, the disciples had the power. You know, we have the ability to, to handle problems in a different way than the, than the, than the unbelievers do. We have uh, the ability to go through life differently and deal with all the ups and downs differently. But we don't. Why? Because of faithlessness, right? The same faithlessness that made these disciples unable to do something here for this man and his son that they were able to do just right before that, that same faithlessness characterizes our life as well. And that's the lesson we need to draw from this. You know, Jesus revealing to his disciples what it takes to live the kingdom life. And the cardinal thing that we need there is faith, right? 
unwavering faith in the Lord. No matter what we are, you and I are going through today or, to, or what we might go through tomorrow, we need to have that unwavering faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. May God enable us to have that faith. Let's move on to the next point, which is, which is about Jesus' prophecy of his death, right? And verse 43 onwards, and they were all amazed at the majesty of God. So look at this now. This is, this is the people there. They are amazed by what, what he has done. What did he do? He cast out this demon that was convulsing this boy, and the boy was completely fine. He was healed, right? And so they were amazed. And then he says, but while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to him, said to his disciples, notice he's saying this to the disciples, let these words sink down into your ears. Okay, for the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying and it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Okay, so now Jesus during his earthly ministry, you know, many times we find him reminding the disciples of his death, right? And uh, if we go back to Luke chapter 9 and verse, um, uh, yeah, I think it's in verse 2, um, sorry, no, uh, verse uh, 21, uh, 22, Luke 9, 22. So this is after Peter confesses who Jesus is, right? You are the Christ of God. And he says, the Son of Man must, uh, he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one. Verse 22, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day, right? So it seems like right after some miracle or right after some big revelation, um, you know, Jesus keeps reminding them of this, right? Here it says he, that he did this while everyone was marveling, right? While everyone marveled at his healing of this demoniac child, he said to his disciples as they too were again, see what was happening was that as Jesus was going about doing all these miracles and wonders and signs, people were, were viewing, you know, they were getting all these messianic images. You know, here was the Messiah who was going to rule, physically rule the world, who was going to throw off the yoke uh, of the Roman Empire, who was going to free them, right? That's what they were thinking. And whenever they started thinking about that, Jesus brought them back saying, hold on, you know, calm down. Don't get too excited because what's really going to happen is not that I'm going to become uh, a physical king of a physical kingdom. I'm going to throw out the Romans and I'm going to uh, free the oppressed and all those kind of things. Yeah, a day is coming for that. But what's going to actually happen is that the son of man, me, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be handed over to be, to be killed. Right? So, um, and we find later in Luke 9.51 that he steadfastly set his face to go towards uh, Jerusalem. Now, what we find here is that Jesus had a single-minded focus on his mission, right? Uh, and what was that mission? The mission was to go to that cross and die for the sins of mankind. He did not deviate from one by one degree, though it was very tough. You know, even when Satan came to him in that wilderness and offered him rulership of the world without the cross that you don't have to go and die you don't have to go and sacrifice yourself you don't have to get beaten just bow down to me and i will give you the kingdoms of the world i will make you the ruler of this world jesus said no right when the people in john 6 15 after the after he fed the 5000 
it says that the people, um, you know, people came to him and they wanted to make him king. They wanted to make him the king. They said, wow, here's, here's this guy. He can feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. He's going to solve hunger. He's going to solve all the oppression that's all around us. This is the man to be our king. And what did Jesus do there? If you go to John 6.15, I'm not going to turn there. It says that he quietly went away from them and went into the mountain. Right? He didn't come at least that first time to become king. And even as he was praying in Gethsemane, which we'll get to later, you know, his statement was, not my will, but thine be done. You know, uh, you know it, uh, the, the, the fact is that, you know, that Jesus was so committed to his mission. Now, why was Jesus? You know, he never lost sight, even as the people were glorifying him, even as people were, 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 had all this acclaim for him. There were crowds following him. They were amazed. They were marveling at his knowledge and his teachings and his miracles. You know, he never lost focus on his mission. Why? Because, um, you know, he genuinely found, as tough as that mission was, as difficult as it was, Jesus found joy in the mission. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Hebrews 12 and verse uh, yeah, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And look at this. Who? For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, what does it say about Jesus? Who? For the joy that was set before him. Now, what did he do? He endured the cross. Did that sound like something joyful? No, but he endured the cross. He despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. Let's go to Hebrews 2 verse 10 to 12. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 10. Yeah, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. What was the joy that was set before him? It was to bring many sons to glory. It was to redeem you and me. That was something joyful for the Lord. And so he set his face. He said, I cannot deviate. I can't let the devil deviate me from my mission. I can't let the people deviate me. I can't let my disciples deviate me from my mission. I am setting my face towards Jerusalem. Yes, I'm going to do all this teaching on the way, but that's where I'm, I'm, I'm looking at that cross right there. That's why I was sent. That's why I humbled myself and made myself nothing to go to that cross. And if I don't make it to that cross, I have failed in my mission. What does... What does this, what do we learn from this? You know, what do we learn? Uh, what does Christ focus on the mission to die mean for us? You know, we need to ask ourselves this question. You know, Jesus had single-minded focus. What is the focus of our life, right? What is the focus of our life? His mission was a labor of love toward us. Um, you know, how dedicated are we? How dedicated are you? How dedicated am I? to living for Christ. Paul says, you know, for me to live is Christ. Is that really true of us? The truth is, you know, we're all in some way living for worldly things, aren't we? You know, I can say that of myself. There's a lot of worldly things I enjoy 
and I work for it. We love the things of the world. We find so much enjoyment. You know, Jesus found enjoyment in the fact that through his death, he was going to redeem you and redeem me and millions of other people and bring them into his heavenly kingdom. That's what he found joy in. Does your life, does my life reflect that Jesus is the king of my life, of your life? What are we doing for him? What is the mission of our life? You know, our Savior, He gave up all the glory that He could have had to die for us. You know, what are we giving? Are we giving anything in return? Do we have a mission in our life that is, that is not a worldly mission, but a mission of service to our Savior who gave His life for us? What does Christ's focus on the mission to die mean for you? How dedicated are we to live for Christ. Let's keep this lesson in our minds as we go on to the next uh, next section, which is the dispute among the disciples. So, you know, interestingly, right after Jesus has just given them this lesson and he's telling them, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to die. Uh, what do we find here? Right? The disciples are just the disciples, right? They're interesting characters here. So, verse 46, then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest? And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. So immediately after Jesus talks about you know the greatest ever act of humility and sacrifice, here we find the very humble disciples, right? No. Here are the disciples full of pride, right? Engaging in the greatest possible, you know, uh, greatest possible play of pride, right? And what is the dispute? In Matthew 18, the panel passage says that they were arguing over who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, our Jesus, he's going to, you know, and keep in mind, you know, it's not surprising they got into this because when we go back a couple of verses in verse 45, it says that when Jesus is here talking to them saying, hey guys, let this thing sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they had just seen this miracle that he had done and, and they've seen the transfiguration at least Peter, James and John had. Um, and it says they did not understand the saying. And it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask. They're like, man, what is this? What is this? What is this man talking about? You know, uh, look at what he, he's going to be given up into the hands of men. Uh, you know, this can't possibly be true, right? He's going to be betrayed. I mean, who would betray him, right? So it's, it's so they're still thinking of this kingdom, right? They're thinking of, um, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 they did not get what he meant, right? They were still thinking of Jesus as a ruling Messiah. They were still thinking that he was going to set up his earthly kingdom. Uh, they were thinking that he's going to set it up with all these hierarchies of people, you know, rulers, deputy, king, okay, of the kingdom. And, and hey, I want to be there, right? I want to be. I mean, we are the guys who are, you know, who are right next to Jesus, right? We've been hanging with him for the last three years, you know. Uh, where are we going to be? Who's going to be in, you know, in that position right there on that, on that hierarchical chart? You know, and, 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 and they expected to be in this prominent position. And so they start arguing and fighting among themselves, right? So they were completely wrong about so many things, weren't they? 
you know, Jesus had not come to set up his earthly kingdom as they imagined. You know, he had come as the suffering servant and not as the ruling king, at least not yet. Yes, he's coming one day. But he had come this time. He had been incarnated to die. And the kingdom that he was building was very different from an earthly kingdom. And Jesus explains this, you know, in John 18.36, he's standing before Pilate and uh, And Pilate is asking him all these questions and he asks him, are you a king? Tell me, are you a king? And Jesus says, you you said it. But then he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Yes, I am a king. And yes, I have a kingdom. And he says, the servants of my kingdom do not fight. Right? This is not a kingdom that requires me to go and fight and knock somebody else down to become the king. This is a different kind of kingdom. And then Jesus teaches them about the attitude that is expected of those who are in his kingdom. He uses a little child to illustrate the truths of the kingdom. To enter his kingdom requires childlike faith. You go back to the parallel passage in Matthew 18. It talks about that. It says that you have to have faith like a child to enter the kingdom. A child implicitly trusts the adults around him or her. Or, the, or, or their parents, and has complete faith, right? You can see that with your own children, how, you know, when they're young, you know, whatever you say is the absolute truth, right? And then, you know, they get older, and then they're like, uh, why? Why is that, right? And then you have to start explaining to them, you know? Um, you know, so anyway, I experienced that a lot, still continuing to, right? So people in his kingdom, you know, they must be innocent and humble like this little child. And, you know, little children are sinners, but when they are little, you know, they don't have that guile in their hearts. You know, and unfortunately they develop it as sinners, right? It comes, the guile keeps building up over time. You know, greatness in the kingdom comes from humility, not pride and not position. And, you know, and Jesus says in Mark 9.35, again, parallel passages, he says, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. You know, greatness in the kingdom comes from service. Whoever receives one of these little children, that is that is the kind of thing that Jesus is looking for in his kingdom. You know, it's not what you do or how well you do it that counts as much as the attitude of the heart that is behind our actions, right? The disciples had completely missed the boat. They were focused on the wrong thing. These disciples were to be the pillars of the church and, 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 and Jesus, you know, very soon, they were to be the foundation of the church, right? Built on the foundation of the apostles. And Jesus was trying to teach them the truth. He's trying to use this argument they were having between them or who will be the greatest. Tell them, no, 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 you got it all wrong. That's not what my kingdom is about. This is what I want you to imbibe and I want you to pass on. Now, what are the implications for our Christian life? You know, what Jesus is telling them here is that, is, is what the epistles say, right? The attitude of every follower of Christ, which is humility and service. You know, make a note of Galatians 5.13, which says, Through love we are to serve one another. Philippians 2.3-5, it says, Do everything in lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than ourselves, looking out for the interests of others, having the same mind of Christ Jesus. You know, and pride, right? Pride is a very subtle sin. 
you know it's a cost of cause of most disputes among people among believers in the church and it is so effectively used by satan you know i can be standing here right now and he's giving me all these thoughts of pride wow you're you're giving such a great uh, sermon you know uh, you're getting so nice and emotional come on pump it up a little bit right uh, you know make me feel good about myself right pride takes many forms uh, you know think about some some ways in which we might be exhibiting pride without even even realizing it maybe it's it's shunning certain believers because they are not our type right you know you go to the book of james he talks about how they're mistreating the poor believers the rich believers are coming into the church and and telling the poor believers you sit down there you know while they take the high positions all of these things happen in the church don't they maybe they're happening right here pride shows up when we take offense at what someone says and we make a grudge out of it even if they may not have intended it maybe it was just an innocent statement but no 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 i got offended right i'm going to i'm going to uh, keep this as a grudge and i'm going to remember this for the next 5 years you know because what they said or did hurt our pride pride takes a form of not being open to correction because it hurts our pride to admit that we may be wrong and we need to be corrected pride takes the form of showing off who we are and what we have and these days of course we have so many our our mic our megaphone is so much wider right i just have to post it on social media nothing happens unless it actually is on my social media post right ajit uh you know the, the this is this is the day we live in right we want to we want people to know i mean it's not enough that i got a you know i i got a nice car i got to put a picture out there so that you know 10000 people across the world know that i got it i got to project everything right so that my pride can swell up and i can feel good about myself right so you know be aware of the many forms of pride in our life you know where is that pride meter in your life you know it's probably it's like a speedometer you know when you're driving it's going this way that way right where is it is it here or is it there and that could be changing from moment to moment you know the moment i step down and somebody comes and tells me oh that was a great sermon george chain pride meter right on overdrive that's not what christ wants he says the least among you right will be the greatest in the kingdom jesus is calling us to be humble and simple to live our lives serving others right so what are the areas of pride in your life how is it impacting your relationship to christ you know we have a wonderful lesson today all you men please come to that lesson on john the baptist okay uh, because it talks about this right and it says that pride um pride always always negatively impacts our relationship with the lord always so if your relationship with the lord is not good examine you know where is that pride meter in your life okay let's move on to the last one last incident which is this thing about the disciples attitude uh, towards exclusion verse 49 now john answered and said master we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he does not follow with us but jesus said to him do not forbid him for he who is not against us is on our side so the disciples bring up this uh, this case of someone outside the group doing uh things you know healing people in Jesus name and and again this is another manifestation of that pride right so Jesus just gave them this lecture on pride and right after that 
of all people, John, who is supposed to be the disciple of love. So you can see how much John had to grow before he became the disciple of love, right? Um, you know, another manifestation of pride, pride of being in the in group. You know, how can those people do it? You know, we're the ones who are around Jesus and they're using the name of Jesus. Does he have, does he have permission to use the name of Jesus? Isn't that copyrighted with us? You know, you know, how can he be doing miracles in the name of Jesus? And Jesus' response is, he who is against us is on our side. Now, what can we learn from this interaction, right? We must never have an elitist attitude, whether as a church or a group within the church, right? Ministry belongs to the Lord. It's not our ministry. It's not my ministry. It's not your ministry. It's the Lord's ministry. Let the Lord deal with the motivations of people. If they have the wrong motivation to ministry in his name, that's his problem, not your problem, not my problem. And we need to focus on our own service, not on tearing down others. And we need to focus on rooting out the pride in our own lives that cause us to tear down others. You know, we are not, we as a church, we don't want to condemn what other people are doing. You know, we work with so many different ministries. You know, uh, even if they don't agree with us on every doctrine, that's okay. You know, they are effectively working for the Lord. And that's the attitude that we need to have. So in conclusion, what, what do we learn from today's lesson? First of all, you know, we need to have complete faith, right? And as we study through the life of Jesus and we look at each episode, right? We've been looking at so many different episodes and it might seem like these are all disconnected things, uh, but we can see God's plan of salvation unfolding. But we can also draw lessons to apply to our own lives as followers of Christ. You know, we get glimpses into the mind of our master. And as we get those glimpses, we understand what is it that pleases and delights him. You know, Jesus was telling them, man, I want you guys to be this way. I want you to have this kind of faith. I want you to have this kind of humility. I want you to be focused on mission just as I am on mission. So what does delight our master? First of all, we need to have complete faith in Christ. And we need to build up the strength of our faith. Even in the midst of challenges and inabilities, we need to maintain our total faith in Him. We need to strengthen that faith by staying in the Word, by, by spending time in prayer, by fellowshipping with our fellow believers. Second, you know, Christ was focused on His mission. He was laser-focused on that mission to fulfill the plan for our redemption. No, we need to be equally focused on our life mission to live for Him, to serve Him, and to grow in Him. Is that true of us? Thirdly, Christ is delighted. He is delighted when we kill our attitude of pride and we develop a spirit of humility and we live a life of humble service. Nothing that we do, and you know, this, this, this pride can, can sometimes come through you know, there's so many different forms of pride, right? I could go on and speak for one hour on pride. Uh, you know, uh, we all know it, right? You know it when you see it. And sometimes pride comes in the form of self, of, of false humility, right? It's like people who say, you yeah, know, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to do that because I'm not capable. Okay, that's false humility, which is sort of a perverse form of pride as well, right? Are you serving him in humility, right? This is not an excuse to not serve him. It is a, the, the way it works is you serve him you know, to 
glorify him, not to glorify myself. You serve him in humility. And then lastly, we need to keep from tearing down our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are serving him. Focus on our work and let God take care of dealing with the problems with the work of others. So I hope that as we have gone through this, you know, go back to that last question when you go home, right? And note down a few things that each of us, right? Each of us should be able to take something from here that we need to apply in our lives. Maybe it's about the strength of my faith. Maybe it's about the pride in my life. Maybe it's about the lack of focus on what God wants me to do, right? Think about this. It's going to be different for each of us. May God enable us to really um, be strengthened through these words and um, grow uh, in our walk with Him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the richness of your word and for the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he came, Lord, to to die, we thank you that he was so focused on that, that he did not let anything distract him. But even as he was going along that journey, Lord, heading towards Jerusalem, that he has given us so much uh, on which to build our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the glimpse that you've given us through the Gospels and especially through the Gospel of, of Luke over these past few months, Lord, uh, to to really delve into the mind of our Savior. And we pray, Lord, that we might learn from all of these glimpses, Lord, what it takes, uh, what it is, Lord, in our lives that would delight the Master, what it is about in our attitudes, in our actions, in our thought processes that would delight. And we pray, Lord, that that you would enable us, Father, to, to seek, to have that desire, to have the faith that drives us the faith and trust that drives us, Lord, to delight you in our attitudes, to uh, to be filled with the Spirit, Lord, so that we may develop, we may grow the fruits of the Spirit in our life, Father. We give you all glory and praise. Thank you, Lord. And as we continue on this journey of study, Lord, as we get on that road to Jerusalem, Lord, and we hear more and we see more glimpses of our Savior, Father, we pray that each of our lives might be impacted by what we learn. We ask all of these things in the name of of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.